Coming up on today's show, a new privacy bill to try and protect your privacy when online. Does it work? An alternative to methadone treatment that shows some promise. Edmonton, of course, loses its opportunity to host some 2026 World Cup games. And we'll talk about the first plants ever to be grown in moon dirt. As I said, talking about the... Um, I, the interesting thing to me is, is this even possible? But... Um, it's a cybersecurity bill brought forward by the federal government yesterday. And, you know, the reception it's receiving, by and large, is, you know what, this isn't bad. This isn't bad. It's something that needs to be done. But it's not. It, it, it's far from perfect. Essentially what it does um, is it, the government says they want the power to compel cybersecurity action from a new category of what they're calling designated operators that work in four federally regulated sectors, finance, telecommunications, energy, and transportation. This would allow government to direct any designated operator in those categories to comply with measures set out in the direction for the purpose of protecting critical cyber systems. You must do this in order to protect what we see as a critical piece of our security system uh, safe from hackers. That's what it comes down to. And then there's, there's a bunch of other aspects to it as well, but that's the big one. And, and like I say, most experts are saying, you know what, we get it. It's not bad. Could be better. Let's find out uh, from our next guest what he thinks. Dr. Tom Keenan is a professor in the School of Architecture, Planning, and Landscape at the University of Calgary and the author of the best-selling book, Techno Creep. Dr. Keenan, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Good morning, Shay. So this bill, uh, like I say, it, 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 everyone seems to be in agreement that the intention here is noble and it's necessary. This is something that needs to be done. They agree on that at least, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's a problem. There's no question. Ransomware is a problem, not just for, you know, governments and big companies, but even little companies. Famously, in Calgary, a wine store was held ransom and had to pay a ransom to get their customer list back. So, you know, it's something that can affect everybody. And that's one of the problems, because when you go out there and you define what's critical, right. uh, uh, you, you know, you can miss some things. Okay, so, uh, I don't know, Shopify, um, they don't sound critical because what did they do? They sell stuff online, but maybe they're somewhere in the supply chain that has something to do with cybersecurity. So, you know, it's always a problem when you try to define what is critical. Well, Dr. Keenan, if you talk about some of the, you know, the ransomware attacks that we've talked most about over the past year or two, it's about healthcare system, which would not fall under federally regulated systems within the country of Canada. That's one of the most vulnerable, one of the most often attacked, and it wouldn't be encompassed here. Absolutely, and that one that, that worries me a lot. I have this scenario. I, I didn't trademark it, but I call it the ransomware from hell. And essentially, instead of saying, we've taken, you know, hello, Foothills Hospital, we've encrypted your patient files and give us $2 million yeah. in Bitcoin, or, you know, we'll uh, erase your files. They say, look, we know that you have 46 Siemens MRI machines and 214 picker x-rays, and we know how to hack them. So all we're going to do is kill somebody every day until you give us $2 million. And if you think that's not possible, I found an Israeli expert who wrote seven different ways to kill somebody with an x-ray machine. What? From, you know, hitting them on the head with it to upping the dose so that they get radiation burn. So it is certainly possible, and that would be a pretty hard one to deal with because you can't just not use your x-ray machine in a hospital. So that's an obvious shortfall when it comes to this legislation. How do you fix... That's the other question, Doctor, is how do you actually bring in legislation that will protect 
our cybersecurity, our cyber systems? I mean, cybersecurity is, can, can you actually build this kind of protection in? You can try. You can try. Now, I mean, it's important to note that another bunch of legislation was just introduced, which is privacy protection, yeah. right? So, they, so the government brought back, uh, and Michael Geist, who's a big expert on this, calls it the Groundhog Day bill because it failed back in 2020. But the government has done something that's probably even more important to the public, which is they brought in some new privacy regulations. As an example, children will have more privacy rights. Parents will be able to go out there and and if your teenager just made a really, really stupid <laughs> Facebook post, they or you can go out there. So I think probably the impact on most people of the privacy bill is going to exceed that of the cybersecurity bill. Yeah, and it gives you the right to make sure that once it's gone, it's gone. And uh, Facebook and the other social media platforms have to make sure that it vanishes, right? Yeah, now it's not perfect. Uh, it's not groundbreaking. Back in 2018, the European Union brought in the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR. And I remember going to, I was on a committee at the university and saying, well, how does this affect us? Because it applies worldwide and it can have huge fines. And the people in charge said, well, we don't do business in Europe. But when I made them go look, they found like hundreds of places where we do, like our bookstore sells a book to somebody in France. Well, that makes us subject to the uh, GDPR because that's a European person. So, you know, what Canada has done with privacy, again, it's good. I mean, it's kind of the same thing, but it's a bit of a timid approach. Yeah. And the other thing I just want to note is that um, I, I know the outgoing privacy commission, Monsieur Terry, and one thing he really wanted was the ability to levy fines. Like the Federal Trade Commission in the U.S. fined Facebook $5 billion a couple of years ago. What they got in this bill was the ability to recommend fines to this new tribunal. And we all know what government tribunals can do, which includes nothing, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I wanted to ask you about the one change that's in this legislation that I think is kind of, because the defense from all of these social media platforms, all of these companies really is, well, you agreed to the terms of use. We told yeah. you up front. So they want to make the terms of use not some ridiculously long thing that nobody ever reads, right? Yes, so the part of the legislation talks about, it's Bill C-27, talks about uh, plain language. Okay, but here's the scenario. Uh, I, whenever I make speeches, somebody puts up their hand and says, I was just talking about a trip to Thailand. I didn't type in anything about it. My phone is eavesdropping on yeah. me. And I used to say, yeah, 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 that's nice, because I couldn't figure out how it was happening. And then I found online a plausible scenario, and here's what it is. Oh, okay. You, you, you go on an app store, let's say not the official Apple or Google one, you, you go on some sketchy app store, and you get an app to, I don't know, put a flashlight on your phone or track something, whatever, and lo and behold, hidden in that app is code that listens to you without telling you that. Now... They might disclose that, as you just said, in the terms. Yeah. So you're going, do you want this? Can you allow it to do this? You want to allow it to use your microphone, blah, blah, blah. Well, once you hit yes on that, you've given consent. So even in the new legislation, they have a defense, and they're probably in another country anyway, so they'll need a defense, that, yeah, just exactly as you said, you gave your permission. Yeah. 
for us to eavesdrop. And it is uncanny. I mean, I've even had it happen to me where I was just talking on the phone and then something shows up. Now, I probably, you know, Googled Thailand or something and forgot about it. But people have convinced me that their phones are listening to them. And, you know, we need much stronger legislation. No, I did that with a friend once because we've all heard the stories. We've all heard the rumors. So we said, you know what? I'm going to talk about getting some camping equipment to go on a camping trip and see what happens. We just talked about it. Yep. Lo and behold, it showed up on our Facebook. I mean, and then they say, well, we're not listening. But somehow it's happening, Doctor. We all know it is. This is why I wrote Technogreep in 2014, and Shoshana Zuboff wrote The Age of Surveillance Capitalism a couple of years ago. We're trying to let people know stuff is going on behind the scenes. So my favorite example is you look at a watch on eBay, you decide not to buy it, you know, it's too expensive, and then you go to Facebook and you see an ad for that watch. And right. most people go, that's uncanny. Now, I know how that one happens. You've actually been sold in an online auction the fact that you're interested in that Rolex watch is worth maybe a tenth of a cent. So companies bid on you to show you the ad for that. So that one we understand. But the one where your phone goes out there and talks about the trip to Thailand after you've just said it yeah. to your friend, that one is pretty techno-creepy. It, you're not kidding. And the question I have, and we'll end it here, is, so this legislation, all these sorts of things, I mean, like you say, it's all happening behind the scenes. It's hard to find. It's hard to track. Is it the old adage of, hey, listen, if you're carrying a cell phone, just assume you're being surveilled? Absolutely. And then you got to talk about artificial intelligence, which is included right. in this new bill. And that one, the great part about that is that it orders companies to explain their artificial intelligence. Now, I have a speech where I talk about new jobs. So, you know, mama, mothers, don't let your babies grow up to be Uber drivers, because we know that won't be a job 10 years from now. But one thing that will be a job is explaining algorithms. And I can explain, if I write a computer program, I can explain it. But if I write artificial intelligence code and it trains itself, I may not be able to explain it. So there was an example where a publication ban was put on a case of a, a minor, and it still made it onto Google because Google users kept Googling this kid's name Jeez. and the crime, and Google learned it. And when Google was called to explain it, they went, uh, we don't know. Duh. Yeah. How did that happen? Uh, it's crazy. It really is. I mean, brave new world, scary new world. Doctor, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Okay, thanks, Shay. Thank you. That's Dr. Tom Keenan, who is the author of the best-selling book, Techno Creep. Scott Weiland, lead singer of Velvet Revolver, died of an opioid overdose. One of the many, 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 many victims of the opioid overdose epidemic that has torn through North America for many, many years. It continues to claim the lives of, you know, more and more Canadians every single day. It's something we just have not been able to even slow down, let alone reverse or stop. In reality, there's every single reason to explore every option available to try and stem the tide here. It doesn't matter what it is. It's it's worth, you know, looking at and examining and bringing into practice if it works. Um, that includes a methadone alternative that is showing some promise. Now, it's, it's it's not brand new, so I'm going to find out exactly what's going on here. We're going to chat with Dr. Ron Lim, who's an addiction specialist and associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Family Medicine at the University of Calgary, co-authored a research paper on this new model of treatment for opioid use disorder. Dr. Lim, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. 
Thank you for uh, having me. Okay, so we're going to sort of contrast this with methadone, which I think a lot of people have heard about. Maybe we, we all know about methadone. It's been around for a very, very long time. But when we talk about methadone treatment for opioid uh, addiction, how does it work and why is it difficult for some people to maintain it? Well, as you have said, uh, Shay, methadone has been around for many, many decades, and it was the original medication to treat opioid use disorder. The issue with methadone is that it is a very dangerous opioid, and if not used correctly, uh, it can result in um, overdose itself. And so there are strict regulations and rules, uh, you know, in terms of using methadone, where you have to uh, go to a pharmacy every day Mm -hmm. uh, to be monitored, you know, to make sure that you are taking the correct dose and using it appropriately. And that has been how we have been using methadone until today. So if you were to start methadone, you have to go to a pharmacy at least to every day for two, three months before we can even give you a one-day carry. So you're tied to a pharmacy. Yeah, and so, I mean, you're talking about employment problems. You're talking about, I mean, travel is out the window, all these sorts of things. It it really is um, restrictive in a lot of ways. Exactly, and it is extremely restrictive to a person's normal life. And if you have a job and you have a regular family, you have regular things to do, it's extremely difficult yeah. to keep going to a pharmacy every day. So this new treatment, or I, I keep calling it new, but it's not. Suboxone's been around for a while, correct? That's correct. Suboxone was uh, approved for use in Canada in 2010. However, the original uh, research studies uh, compared Suboxone with methadone uh, using the similar style of daily dosing. Uh, so so you know, for the longest time, people were using Suboxone in the same way uh, and having you know, the same barriers of going to the pharmacy every day. Um, so that's, that's by itself you know, uh, has continued those barriers uh, for as what we have talked earlier. Right. Now, when we talk about methadone, from what I understand, when you take methadone, um, the, the high is not something that happens. If you've used methadone more than a handful of times, it, you no longer experience any kind of high. So it maintains you so you can function normally and, and return to normal life that way. Is Suboxone the same thing? Does it, does it, is it self-limiting in that way? Suboxone does the same thing, but there are extra qualities to Suboxone. Suboxone is six times less dangerous than uh, methadone in causing overdoses. Uh, it, is, uh, it is only a half opioid, what we call a partial agonist. So, so the, the, the safety profile of Suboxone uh, warrants that it may not necessarily need to be as controlled you know, in daily dosing like methadone. So that's what we researched you know, using two different models of care uh, in our recent paper. Yes, this study. Describe to us how it worked and what you did, because like you say, some people took it with the daily use and some people had more freedom around it, and uh, you examined what the results were, right? Exactly. So we were funded uh, in 2017 by the Canadian Research Institute for Substance Misuse to, to research the models of care where we compared Suboxone uh, in flexible dosing where we actually immediately gave people one week uh, prescriptions at a time and after a month we gave them two weeks uh, prescriptions at a time so they only have to go to the pharmacy once a week or twice uh, once every two weeks compared to methadone uh, traditional way as we have discussed 
So we, we researched in four major cities uh, you know, across Canada, uh, Vancouver, Calgary, uh, Montreal, and, uh, and, and Toronto. And uh, the, uh, the, the study you know, concluded in 2020, and we uh, compared the, uh, the, the results. And we found that the suboxone arm, if you, even if you were to prescribe them you know, straight away, you know, one week at a time or up to two weeks at a, uh, at a time, it was comparable to methadone uh, in terms of its f- efficacy. And it was no more dangerous uh, than uh, that. Uh, there was no other you know, a- adverse effects you know, using it that way. And the other question I have here, uh, when we talk about methadone, and one of the reasons they tell people uh, is to go to the pharmacy in misdirection. I mean, it, you'll, you can sell it on the street, right? Uh, is it the same thing with Suboxone? Is it used as a street drug? Is there that kind of a risk of it ending up in the wrong hands? You don't get much of a high. I mean, we talked about that methadone, if used correctly, uh, you don't get a high. However, you know, methadone is still a full opioid. So oh, yeah. you can, if, if people combine it with other opioids like you know street fentanyl etc etc there is a cumulative effect that you they can still get a high out of it with suboxone it's the opposite because it has a maximum limiting uh, effect you know because it's only a half opioid uh people you know do not get a high you know uh you know from it if you use it on its own and if you were on suboxone and you use other opioids it actually mutes the high because it blocks the effects of uh of other opioids Interesting. Okay, so do you, I mean, it sounds to me like this is a, an avenue that would be extremely beneficial to to expand, but I mean, it, it takes a lot of, people have to change the way they think about these sorts of things, right? And sort of say, okay, we, we need to open this up and make it less restrictive in order to make it more beneficial. That's correct. And so until now, I mean, we don't have enough prescribers to yeah. prescribe Suboxone. Uh, the you know people who are prescribing it, some some people are still prescribing it in a t- traditional way, and so we're not you know uh, using it to its maximum effect, which you know is trying to get it into as many people who abuse opioids as possible, because it is protective from overdoses as well once you're on uh, the Suboxone. So we are hoping that with this. Uh, evidence that we are currently generating that prescribers, you know, uh, are going to embrace this easier, don't have to control it as, uh, as much as, as, as methadone, not to fear it, because it is a relatively safe uh, medication to use. Interesting. Can we look to anywhere else around the world that's tried this, that is doing this, or are we sort of a front runner here? We are more or less uh, you know, uh, the front lines here. I mean, okay. we, we, we published our, uh, our results in the American Journal of Psychiatry, uh, you know, uh, trying to, uh, and, uh, you know to, to try and get this message across, you know, uh, not just Canada, but across all of North America. Very interesting work, Doc. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much for having me. That is Dr. Ron Lim, who is uh, an addiction specialist and an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Family Medicine, University of Calgary, uh, and the co-author of this research paper on this suboxone use. Like I say, it's been around for a while, but, you know, like the doctor says, it's the way that we think about a lot of this stuff, and it's the same thing with methadone. Uh, I mean, just, it works, but it is such a pain for people to try and use that a lot of them just can't stick with it. They give up because, you know, you're going to the pharmacy every single day, and if you don't, you're sick. Uh, and it, it's just, it, it, it's not, it works, 
But it's not easy. It's not easy. It takes a tremendous commitment, a tremendous commitment. And if Suboxone's easier and does the same thing, then, uh, like I said, with the way opioids are just tearing through society right now, seems to me anything and everything that might work, it it should be on the table because it's going to be something different for every single person. You probably heard the news. The feds were on board. The province was on board. The city was on board. It looked like, well, I mean, maybe it didn't look like, but Canada, or Edmonton at least, was in the running for hosting some World Cup games in 2026. Um, North America hosting the World Cup. Canada getting some games, uh, Vancouver, Toronto, Edmonton campaigning to host some of these games. Well, it didn't work. Edmontonians are putting a brave face on. Here's city manager Andre Corbold. I'm just super proud of our team. Like, they, they worked really hard. They did a fantastic job. We put everything we could possibly put forward in this bid. That's what we've done. I'm very proud of that. And uh, we, we host other events. We'll continue to host other events. I just have to tell you that the bid that we put on the table and the demonstration of support and cooperation that we had was outstanding. I don't know what else we could have done, and I'm 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 very proud of that work. And that's Edmont- Explore Edmonton CEO Tracy Bednard. So we're very proud of the work that we did, very proud of putting the bid forward. As I say, province was on board uh, with the funding. Now, there were some strings attached there, and some people saying, hey, maybe that's what happened. Maybe that's went wrong. The feds were on board. Um, ultimately, though, in the end, the decision was made. Edmonton would not host any of these games. They'll go to Vancouver and they'll go to Toronto. Much, much dismay uh, around here. So let's find out what that means. How big of a deal is it really? Obviously, it's it's disappointing as you're a soccer fan, but in terms of dollars and cents and economic impact and all the rest of that stuff, how big of a difference are we talking about? Dan Mason is a professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology, Sport and Recreation at the University of Alberta. Dan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, it's disappointing, right? It's disappointing as a community. It's, it, we were rejected, Dan. That's what it comes down to. Nobody likes rejection, right? Yeah, especially Edmontonians. I think that uh, in, in some ways we've sort of faced a few of these decisions over the years and uh, we're kind of wary of where we fit. In, in the hierarchy of cities, and so it's just hard to take, you know, again, um, losing out to cities like Toronto and Vancouver. Especially when you take a look at Edmonton. Like you say, when it comes to soccer specifically, we've hosted some major events and knocked it out of the park. But when it comes to hosting these international sporting events, our reputation, our record's pretty good, right? We punch above our weight. Oh, absolutely. Way, way, way better. I think... Um, Edmontonians should be proud that they've got a group of people in, in place that are actively pursuing events of this nature, uh, various sizes, and they've had a lot of success. And Edmontonians should also be proud that they've shown that they can back these events, um, perhaps more so than other cities might have the same size. Um, when we take a look at what we lost out on, of course, the games, uh, that's part of it. But there's so many people that were talking about the economic impact. I saw one report yesterday talking about three quarters of a billion dollars. I don't know where that number comes from. How big of an economic hit do you think we're really taking by not being host to some of these games? Um, certainly there's going to be a, a significant positive impact. But I think that those um, figures tend to be inflated a little bit because yeah. they're usually commissioned by people who are proponents of hosting the events. So... I think that you kind of have to take those with a grain of salt and and assume that there's you know there's going to be some positive economic impact because you've got people who will be coming to Edmonton who otherwise wouldn't be coming specifically to watch soccer, but at the same time you need to sort of realize that that these are numbers that are thrown out there to try and attract people's support. 
So I think that that's something you just need to be aware of. Um, it also depends on how much it costs to put on the, the event. If, sure. if you're if you're looking at a a hundred million dollar impact and you're you're it costs you two hundred million dollars to put it on, and that's a that's a, a net loss when it comes to uh, money moving around in the economy. When we take a look at why Edmonton didn't get the games, I mean, there's a bunch of different reasons. There's people talking about the strings that were attached by the provincial funding. There's the infrastructure in terms of Commonwealth Stadium not necessarily up to snuff. Does it just boil down to Dan? We're not Vancouver and Toronto. I think in many ways it does. I think that, you know, if you think about a hierarchy of cities in, in Canada and the world, Toronto and Vancouver are up there. Um, they're very livable cities. They're very um, visible cities outside of Canada. And so I think that, you know, Edmontonians should still be proud that we were in that conversation. But at the same time, when you, when you show those shots of Vancouver with the mountains and the water and, and, and uh, you know, Toronto with with its all its amenities, I think it's, it is difficult to compete. Um, having said that, I think that Edmonton would have put on a great show, and I think that in many respects, hosting the event would be more important to more to Edmontonians. So because it would be a bigger deal in a city like Edmonton because it doesn't have the same kinds of amenities that Vancouver and Toronto have. So it's a little disappointing in that sense. But um, at the same time, I don't think that um, we should be sad that we're losing a significant amount of money or anything like that. I just think it's probably more related to the intangible benefits of, of hosting the games and everything. And I think that soccer fans are probably, you know, they're not going to not watch the World Cup now that it's not being held in Edmonton. So, you know, it's it's still going to still going to go on and soccer is still very popular in Edmonton and it's seen a surge, uh, you know, a surge in, in popularity. And I think that that momentum is still going to continue to grow. Where does dealing with FIFA fit into all of this? It has a reputation, Dan, as you well know. Um, is there any way really of knowing why they made the decision that they made? And there's all kinds of speculation around what, what they have on the go too. Well... FIFA's a, a, a powerful organization, and they're also a very self-important organization, I think. And so I think that if there's, uh, you know, if, if FIFA felt, felt slighted at all in any way, I think that that could have come into to yep. play. But I think that, um, you know, that organization doesn't have a, an unblemished record for choosing sites to host games. Um, there's been corruption in that organization. So there's all kinds of decisions and choices that could be made behind the scenes right, that, that we don't even know about. Yeah, that we're completely out of the control of, of the bid process. So yeah, I think you, that's what was reflected in the comments made by uh, by Edmonton. You know, they, they felt very comfortable and confident in the bid that they put forward. And at a certain point, that's all you can really yeah. control. Exactly, yeah. Uh, it's an interesting one. But as you say, the World Cup will go on. Good for Vancouver, good for Toronto, and a bunch of cities in the States and in Mexico, and, and we'll still be uh, watching closely here in Edmonton. Appreciate your time, Dan. Oh, no problem at all. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That's Dan Mason, who's a professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology, Sport and Recreation at the University of Alberta. Space, the final frontier. Possibility of successfully navigating an asteroid field is approximately 3,720 to one. But it is Friday, which means it's time to talk space, which we like to do on this show. And if I don't, I hear from you in the audience saying, hey, it's Friday. Why aren't you talking about space? Uh, This is kind of, it's space related. It's a really interesting story, as a matter of fact. We're going to be talking about the first ever plants grown in moon dirt. Okay. That's what we've got on the go here. We've got plants grown here on Earth, but in dirt that came from the moon. 
which is pretty amazing. The dirt came from the Apollo mission. So it's been on Earth for a while now, um, but they've got a very small crop. So to tell us about this, we have Dr. Annalisa Paul, the research professor in horticultural sciences and director of the Interdisciplinary Center for Biotechnology Research at the University of Florida. Dr. Paul, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for uh, for inviting me on. Really interesting topic. I think uh, people will enjoy this. We're talking about moon dirt, right? So this is dirt that came back from the Apollo mission? Yes, yes it is. From three different Apollo missions, in fact. Apollo 11... 12 and 17. Okay, so we've had this we've had this dirt on earth for some time, but this latest news that just came out, this is the first crop that has been grown in this moon dirt? The very first. What is it? <laughs> well, it is not exactly a crop per se. Okay. It's, we it's an experimental plant called Arabidopsis thaliana. We just call it Arabidopsis for short. Um, it is the what we call model organism for for plants. And so it is used in all across the world for any kind of research. And one of the things that makes it very cool for doing this kind of work is that it is genome has been completely sequenced, it's, and it's really tiny. And so we only got 12 grams of material, and which means four grams for each one of those sites. And so every plant had to grow in a single gram of soil. And oh, wow. you have to be pretty small to do that well. Yeah, no kidding. That's incredible. Tell us about the soil that's come back from the moon. Uh, you know, we all know, especially this time of year, we're out in the garden, we're planting gardens, things like that. We know what earth dirt is like, what good earth dirt is like. Is moon dirt good for planting things? It is not very good for planting things. The, uh, the, the moon dirt is a lot more like what you could think of as on terrestrial systems, earth systems, would be like volcanic ash or okay. ground-up basalt. It's, um, there's really not a lot to it as far as nutrients and things in it that plants need. So, in fact, when we used it, we used it as we compared it against a, a terrestrial simulant. It's just called JSC-1A. It is supposed to look a lot like the lunar materials, but even so, we had to add a little bit of nutrient solution for both even the controls, the, the earth, the, the earth volcanic stuff, as well as for the lunar materials, because there's really nothing in there that can support plant growth. But it even so, it had uh, they they were able to grow in it, and it had some effects, but it's pretty hopeful for the future. But taking a look at, the, I mean, even looking at the pictures, like you're talking about the the, the volcanic earth dirt uh, and the and the and the moon dirt, the earth dirt did a lot better. Even though you're saying it's not great dirt for growing in, yeah. and it didn't do that well. So I mean, even that was better than the moon dirt, right? Yes, yes, absolutely, and that's what we use it for the controls. And so all the comparisons that we did, both in terms of cataloging the sides and the colors and everything else as well as the patterns of gene expression, the physiology responses and stuff, was all compared directly to the, um, the, the earth controls that are also this volcanic material. So if we were to try to compare it to, say, growing it in your garden soil, it would be a pretty hard comparison yeah. because they would do so much better. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so you talk about how important this is to the future of you know space exploration, space travel, things like that, and I think we understand why, but how does this help move that further in terms of maybe, maybe we can exist in space? Well, 
you know, plants are the things that actually enable us to do that existence, to be able to be those explorers. Otherwise, you have to rely on stuff that you can put into, you know, your backpack to go to another place. But plants are what allow us to then take our biology with us to not only give us food, but also recycle air, recycle water. And so it is the enabling technology for future exploration, whether you're talking about just in space or to other planetary surfaces. Um, potentially, I mean, like we, we all compare it to what we've seen in movies for people like us, I think, um, you know, and when you talk about the Martian, right, we all know he had the potatoes. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that sort of what this could potentially possibly maybe one day lead to? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, now the Martian, of course, is fiction and it's pretty extreme in the way it was done and everything, but fundamentally, absolutely. How, how do you make, um, you know, inhospitable soils, hospitable you add water you add oxygen and you add organic material maybe not the same organic material that mark watney did <laughs> but you get the picture <laughs> exactly yeah it, it is really really interesting dr paul thank you so much for your time today i appreciate you joining us you're very welcome thank you that is dr annalisa paul who is a research professor in horticultural sciences and the director of the interdisciplinary center for biotechnology research at the university of florida Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.